Father in heaven, Lord, we sing words like holy, and when we say them, Lord, to us, they're just a church word. They're a phrase that we've heard or learned. Father, it's hard for us to comprehend what it actually means, that you are so wholly different, so wholly set apart, so far above anything that we can really imagine, and so perfect in everything that you do, that that if we were to be compared to you, Lord, there would not be a comparison. And Father, we, we look at our own lives and we look at our own walks and we recognize that we're full of weakness and failure and, and we're not the strong people that we always want to be, Lord, and we don't always have the attitude that we would love to have. We don't always see the opportunities that are right in front of us. And Father, we just recognize that, that there's so much that's lacking and yet you love us and you've cared for us enough that you were willing to send your son from all the glory of heaven to become one of us, to live among us, to experience life as we experience life, to teach us how to live our lives and then to die as our savior and our atoning sacrifice. You love us enough, Lord, that you wash us free from our own sins in the blood of Jesus through baptism and you fill us with your own spirit that we might be made alive again and we can grow and become the people that you want us to be. And Father, it's a mystery that we'll never understand fully and grace and love that we can never fully comprehend, but we thank you that we have an opportunity to receive it. Father, I pray today as we open your word and we, 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 we discuss what it means to be lost, Lord, that you might just help us to understand where we are in that story and in those parables. And that, Lord, you would just open our heart and to see ourselves through your eyes as we open your word. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, for the last seven weeks or so, we've been on a journey as we make our way through the middle part of Luke, where Luke reminds us that Jesus steadfastly set his face toward Jerusalem. And that was just a, sh a shifting of gears, if you will. It was a change of direction. Uh, up until that point, Jesus had been doing ministry, and now he was preparing others to do ministry while still doing ministry. And we, we've taken a look at a lot of stories that kind of filter in. And certainly, if you've read through that text between Luke the ninth chapter and Luke 22, uh, when Jesus goes to the cross, you recognize that while we've hit a lot of highlights, we've missed a lot of really good stories as well. Jesus deliberately kind of working with his people and, and helping them to learn the lessons that they need so that they're equipped and they're prepared to take on the responsibility of sharing the gospel once he leaves and returns to the Father. And so this, this reading is valuable for a couple reasons. One thing is it kind of prepares our hearts and minds to consider where we are this time of year as we're in a couple weeks going to, in, in a real way, just remember the, the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Jesus. But it also um, helps us to recognize the attitudes that we need to have in order to be the kind of ambassadors that God calls us to be. Because we, we kind of fail to re remember that sometimes, but that's exactly what Paul described this as. He said, you are ambassadors of Christ, right? We are the ones tasked with carrying the message about what God has done in this world to our generation and to the people that we're surrounded by. And that's a huge and awesome responsibility, both in the honor that goes with that, but also in the task. It's just an enormous task. And so we've taken a look at a lot of different things. And this morning, I think, we're gonna arrive at a text that really will speak to all of us in this room this morning. Uh, some of us may find ourselves as the subject of the text, and some of us may find ourselves 
as the people to whom the stories were told to kind of illustrate a lesson, but I think somewhere in this, every one of us is gonna find something, every one of us is gonna find something that connects with where we are and where God is wanting us to go. And so if you have your Bibles today, turn with me if you would to Luke the 15th chapter. We're gonna pick up in verse number one as Jesus is dealing with a group of people that are known as the Pharisees. And sometimes we, people wonder, where do these people come from? And that's a great question. The Pharisees uh, the, as a group some uh, kind of came together at some point in that intertestament period. And I really think that they're, they're the creation of that group or that sect, whatever you want to call it, was actually a really positive thing. They, they, they came together because they wanted to, do, to be the best Jewish believers that they could be. They, they realized that the law had been given and it was a very exacting sort of law and it was, a, it was a very powerful testimony to who God wanted us to be and how do mankind broken like we are, how do we, how do we have a, a relationship with God? And so they, they, they recognized that in the time of exile and even in the early parts of the intertestament period, a lot of people believed in God but they weren't living a life that reflected the teachings of the old law. And, and so this group of people, kind of in response to the Sadducees, who were kind of the, the, the kind of liberal left, left wing, if you will, using our right-hand, left-hand terms, they were the people that they didn't really believe in the, the resurrection. They didn't really believe in, in a lot of the miracles of the Old Testament. They, they, were kind of, they were kind of that side of the equation. And they also were responding to a lot of just the worldly people. There were Samaritans that were kind of uh, partially Jewish and partially pagan, and there were just a lot of secular Jewish people that had been influenced by their culture. Matthew would be a great example of that. He was a tax collector, um, probably, we don't know, but probably not the most um, adherent Jewish person uh, that you could find. So this Pharisee group kind of came into place, and, and, and their goal was just, let's do it right. But the, the problem was that somewhere along the line, they they maintained the outside appearance of righteousness. But Jesus recognized that on the inside, they had lost the spirit of where God was calling them to be. So on the outside, they looked like they were great folks and they looked like they had it all together and they, they wore their religion on their, actually on their clothing, all right? Um, so they, they, were, they were obvious, but on the inside, Jesus described them like a tomb. He said, you are full of death, you're full of dead men's bones. And that kind of sets up this conversation because Jesus often would have kind of discussions with the Pharisees because they knew the law and they were trying to kind of disprove Jesus' authority and, and so they would often lock horns with Jesus. The Sadducees, it would appear, just really didn't care. And the, the culture, the, the secular people, were attracted to Jesus and that's the problem right here. So it says, now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. The him here is Jesus if you follow the context from 14. And the Pharisees and the scribes were grumbling and they said, this man receives sinners and eats with them. So one of their tenets was we need to limit our interaction with people who don't have the same convictions that we have. And, and there's some wisdom in that, isn't there? Because the Bible tells us that evil companions do what? They corrupt good morals or they corrupt good character, some of your versions might say. All right, so that's a biblical concept. They understood that the people that you spend time with have an effect on, on where you are spiritually. And that's why having church and gathering together in Bible studies and, and, and worshiping together and doing, and doing uh, in-depth Bible studies, that's why that stuff's so important because it kind of helps us 
to remain strong in our convictions and understanding of Scripture. And uh, if we don't have that, that support, sometimes it can be real easy for us to drift away. The Pharisees understood this, but they had kind of taken this to an extreme. And, and so it was, it was an encumbrance for them to, to relate to people who were not holy or clean like they were. Um, and so they're marveling at Jesus because two of the groups of people that they thought the least of culturally were attracted to Jesus, the tax collectors and then the general category sinners. And, and what they would do is they would attempt to teach these people, but from a distance. They would try to kind of holler out, this is what you need to do. You need to straighten up. You need to do right, right? But from a distance, Jesus had a very different tactic. Jesus, well, Jesus invited them in. He receives sinners and he eats with them. So Jesus shared a relationship with these people, not just an instructional relationship, but a personal relationship. People you eat with are people that you kind of have a relationship with, right? And it's important that you do that. And so they're grumbling about this, which the Bible says that we're to do all things without what? Grumbling and come. I know you guys do not. The first session, they all said it. They were grumbling when they said it, all right? But um, it's an important thing to remember. The Bible teaches us that we're not to be grumbling people, right? To do all things without grumbling or complaining. And they were kind of grumbling. They were murmuring about this. And so Jesus decides it's time to address this. Now, I think this is because of a couple things. But one of them is, and this is important for us to notice, not all Pharisees were rotten people. In fact, in fact, some of the Pharisees are going to become some of the most powerful advocates for Christianity. The Apostle Paul, as we well know, um, describes himself as the Pharisee of Pharisees. He said, you can't find a more Pharisee Pharisee than I was, right? And yet God used him to, be, to bring the message of the gospel to huge tracts of the, of the Greek world uh, and uh, of the Gentile world because his heart was in the right place. And I think a lot of these guys' heart were in the right place. Jesus was just challenging their presumptions about how the world works. And so Jesus decides that he's going to teach these, these gentlemen a lesson using three stories. And we, we find this in Scripture a lot of times, but when the Bible repeats things over and over again, it's for emphasis, right? But also, Jesus teaches three different stories. He doesn't just say the same thing over and over again. He does that on occasion, too. But in this case, he teaches three stories back-to-back -back with very similar themes, but with differences that help us see it from one position, from another position, and finally, kind of from a father's position as best we can. So we're going to jump into this. And Jesus starts with talking about lost sheep. Now, Sheep get lost probably most of the time, kind of like, uh, like cattle do. I, I've never raised sheep. My, my grandparents raised a ton of sheep, um, but I was a little young for, for that, uh, that adventure. Uh, last Saturday, McKay came over to the house to bring me something, and as he's pulling in, he's like, you are aware that you have a calf grazing in your neighbor's front yard. And I was not aware that I had a calf grazing in my neighbor's front yard, but it didn't shock me because the moment that he told me I got thinking, I said, I didn't plug in the other extension cord. I had seen her on the way home earlier that day doing what calves do when they get out. All right? She doesn't necessarily want to be out of the pen, but the problem was is that all the fresh green grass inside the pen had been eaten. All that was left was dry hay. But on the outside of her pen, there was all this luscious green grass. In fact, my, my neighbor's whole front yard is just full of luscious green grass, and there's this patch of clover right on the other side of the fence. And so she had started nibbling, right? 
And, and, and when I came home, I saw that she had her neck through the fence. And so I went, as any good farmer would do, and I plugged in my electric fence. Um, and uh, if you've ever tied into one of those, that's a very positive reinforcement that you shouldn't be on that side of the fence. Um, but I didn't remember that I had unplugged the other side as well. And so by the time McKay got there, she had done what they do. She had taken one nibble and she'd kind of stepped through and she'd pushed a little bit more and it's smooth wire fence. So there was no pricks or no barbs. Before she knew it, her body was more than halfway through and she simply walked out. Well, we get over there to the other side of the yard and she realizes there's a problem because her buddy is still in the pen, right? And her buddy's like, get back in here. And uh, she's running around. And, and the problem is, is that now we have to convince this calf how to get back into the pen. That's easy. You can step on the wire and pick it up. She could have walked right through. But she didn't understand that. And so Jesus sets up a parable about a lost animal. But in this case, it's a lost sheep. So read with me verse number three of Luke 15. So he told them this parable. They're grumbling about him eating with tax collectors and sinners. So he told them this parable. What man of you, having a hundred sheep, if he has lost one of them, does not leave the 99 in the open country and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he lays it on his shoulders and he's rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls together all of his friends and his neighbors and he says to them, rejoice with me for I have found the sheep that was lost. Just so I tell you, there will be more joy in heaven over one sinner who repents than over 99 righteous persons who need no repentance. So as we, as we set this up this morning, Jesus is going to tell us kind of, well, there's about five things that I, I want us to notice about this first parable. We're looking at three of them, so we're going to have to move through these very, very quickly today. But, but there's, there's five things in this first parable that I want you to notice. Some of these are going to be repeated in the following two parables as well. But the first one is this, that we must pursue the lost. Notice how Jesus phrases that. He, he says, he says uh, what man of you having a hundred sheep? Who wouldn't? Almost as the idea there is who wouldn't go and do this thing? And I'm thinking as I read it, and maybe you're thinking this as you're reading it too, I think a lot of people wouldn't. You've got 99 sheep that you're going to leave in the open country. You're, you're going to leave rather vulnerable. And Matthew, the Matthew account kind of lays this story out a little bit, little bit bigger, and it talks about where they were. But, but you're going to leave these 99 sheep alone while you go to search for one straggler. Most of us would look at the economics of that. And we would say that's not smart. While you're gone, those 99 could get harassed by wolves or stolen by by. by uh, whatever sheep wrestlers are called. I don't know what those are, um, but uh, yeah, uh, thieves. There we go. Um, they can be stolen by thieves, uh, whatever the case might be. Something could happen to those 99 while you're gone, but Jesus just presents this like this is perfectly rational and normal. Who wouldn't if you had this one lost lamb go and find that one lost lamb? Now, maybe it was the way that things were done in those days. I don't know to interview any shepherds from the first century. People preach this on both sides of the fence. But the point that Jesus makes here is well taken either way. And that is Jesus is saying that one life mattered enough for him to leave the entire herd and go and search for it. Everyone has value, <clears throat> excuse me. And I think that's important for us to notice right here. It's not just the group that has value. It's not just selected certain persons who are naturally following, but even those who are stragglers, 
even the strays, even those who have nibbled their way into lostness are people who are valuable to Jesus. A herd of 100 sheep would be a modest flock, I think, in those days. And uh, this shepherd would be a moderately successful shepherd. And it might even be considered to be not good stewardship for him to leave the majority of his flock to search for one. But as Jesus tells this parable, he said this is exactly what's going to happen. Now remember that this is a parable that kind of teaches two groups of people. Certainly it's talking to a group of people who are lost. Maybe some of those tax collectors and those sinners are sitting here at the same table or in the same area listening to Jesus teach this story. But this story is equal parts important for those Pharisees who are looking at this and they're saying, how do we deal with lost people? And Jesus is saying, I deal with lost people differently than you do. I don't try just to keep my distance from them. In fact, I'm going to seek out and find them. Jesus, in fact, says that's his purpose. The Son of Man comes to seek and save that which is lost. That was his expressed purpose for being in this world. And so Jesus is explaining that in a way that they could understand. But here's where the story gets interesting. So he leaves the 99, he goes out, he finds the one that's missing, and then the third thing I want you to notice is this, that the shepherd then carries the sheep. The shepherd carries a burden. He says when he finds it, he picks the sheep up and he puts it on his shoulders. Interesting kind of of tidbit here. Um, This image of a shepherd with a sheep on its shoulders was actually the original um, kind of symbol for the church before people adopted the cross. In, in the first century world, when they kind of came up with a, with a symbol that, that represented who they were, it was the shepherd with a sheep across its shoulders, which is kind of, kind of a cool thing if you think about it. Of all the things and the images of the life of Jesus that they could pick, they felt that this image most clearly represented who Jesus was. And it does paint just an absolutely amazing picture of Jesus Christ, doesn't it? Because if Jason had been the one that was featured in this story, it would go a little bit different, I can guarantee. Because I I would want to go find the one lost bit of livestock. And when I found the one lost bit of livestock, I would probably tackle the livestock, right? McKay and I talked about, can you tackle a cow? We we debated it, but we decided it would be best for us not to try. Um, We would need Nick to give us instruction about how to do this properly. Um, But... uh, but we would tackle it, and then we would take, I would put a halter on the, on, the, on the little lamb, right? And I would tie that to my donkey, and I would drag it all the way home, right? And the whole way I would be kicking in the biscuits, saying, don't ever do this again. Don't you ever run. Stay with the group, you little vagrant, right? That would be what Jason would do. But Jesus finds this little lamb maybe hiding in the brush or maybe still nibbling at will, goes to it, picks it up in his arms, throws it on his shoulders, and gives this little lamb a free ride back to the flock. And you look at that and you're like, that doesn't even make sense to me. And that's the enormity of God's love for us. Every single one of us in this building have experienced the exact thing that Jesus is describing here. Because if we were to try to make it back on our own power and our own will, we simply wouldn't have enough to do it. We can't go that distance. We can't can't cover that much ground. You might get closer, but we'll never make it. Jesus recognizes that. So he just reaches down and he throws this up on his shoulders and he said, let me take you back to where you belong. 
A beautiful image. Jesus kind of built on that idea in Matthew 11. This is one of my favorite passages in, in the New Testament. Verses 28 and 29. Jesus says this. He said, come to me, all of you who are weary and burdened. We live in a world today that is weary and burdened. Some of us in church this morning would probably describe ourselves as weary and burdened. I'm tired. I'm I'm harassed. I feel like I'm, I'm, I'm challenged at every corner. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me. For I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. Jesus recognizes, I think, what we all kind of recognize, and that is that this world, if you allow it to, this world will tear you apart. It will wear you down. It will grind you out. Jesus is like, you're still going to have to move through life. You're still going to have to deal with a lot of burdens. But if you have a yoke that fits, you can pull into that. If you have a, if you have a guide that is, is familiar with where you are, and don't you love the language that he uses? He says, for I am gentle and humble in heart. There's nothing about what I'm doing when I'm dragging my little calf or my little sheep back to the pen with a rope and a halter that's gentle or humble, is it? I'm, I'm pridefully angry at this animal. I'm angry, and so I take that out with my frustrations out while being not gentle. <laughs> I'm actually being rough because I think in my mind that my roughness will teach this animal to behave, when in reality, probably what my roughness teaches that animal is simply fear. Now, if it's an animal that's going to be slaughtered, if it's just a sheep that has to stay in a pen for a certain amount of time and it goes to become sheep burgers or whatever the case is, um, maybe that's not a problem. But you remember, Jesus wasn't talking about sheep in that term. He was talking about sheep that follow the shepherd, right? He was talking about sheep that know, hear my voice, they know my voice, they respond to me. We're not creating that kind of relationship when we're not gentle and humble in heart. Jesus said, you come to me, and I'm a, I'm a master who's gentle and humble in heart. Sometimes I think Satan lies to us, and he says, you can't, you can't really fully surrender to Jesus. You, you can't really fully trust God because he's going to do something to you, right? And, and are there going to be challenging seasons in life? Yes. Will there be a lot of work in following the Christian life? Certainly. Jesus said, take my yoke upon you, right? Yoke is an implement of work. But you think about something, guys. A yoke is not just for one person to pull, is it? You wear a yoke when you have a teammate. Jesus is saying, you take my yoke. You're pulling with me. Yeah, life may be tough. You may be going through some real challenges right here this morning. That's a possibility. There are people all around the world that are believers as we are today. Some of them have it easier than we do, and some of them have it extremely hard. But we're never pulling alone if we're pulling with Jesus. So the shepherd puts that burden on his own shoulders and he carries that lamb back. And then when he gets back, you notice what happened. This is the fourth thing on the list. The, 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 the salvation calls for a celebration, right? He calls all of his friends and neighbors over. And this is a theme that we're gonna see repeated in each of these three parables. So hang on to that. But he calls everyone together and he's like, this is a great day. Now, if that were Jason again, I would call all of you up and say, this is a terrible day today. I spent two hours of my afternoon having to chase some lamb back into the pen, right? I'm aggravated. But this shepherd is excited because there's a difference in attitude. I'm aggravated that I was inconvenienced. I'm aggravated that I had to reallocate resources. The shepherd 
is excited because what was lost is now found. As he goes out into his fold that night and he counts off his sheep, number 100 is in the pen. And he would have been dinner for some wolf that night if he hadn't been found. Jesus knows exactly what the cost would have been in his lostness. And so there's this great celebration that breaks out. Number five, if you're taking notes with me this morning, is simply this, that religious pride causes spiritual blindness. Jesus is telling these parables because while there's some good-hearted Pharisees, I'm certain, they have a lot of pride about their righteousness. And it's blinded them to understand that God calls all men to repentance, not just the certain few that know the rules and are in the club. Men seek honor to avoid shame. But God reaches out to the lost despite the shame and despite the cost. The Pharisees were thinking in the back of their minds, there's no way I would, I would put myself in a place to associate with these people. And Jesus is saying, if I can save these people, I don't mind humbling myself to approach them. It was two very, very different mindsets that resulted in very different ways that they lived. So let's move to the second of the two parables because that's what Jesus does. He just tells one parable, doesn't even explain it, just smashes it right up against a second parable that picks up in verse number eight. Or what woman, having 10 silver coins, if she loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? So our first parable, it really has the shepherd going out to seek the sheep. And we get that, right? Jesus is the good shepherd. We have that idea. We're, of course, the sheep. But this parable is a little bit different because here's a woman who possesses 10 silver coins. They're probably, uh, in, in, the, in the original language, they would have kind of uh, probably uh, uh, corresponded <clears throat> to a, a drachma, which is about a day's wage. So just for fun this morning, just so we have some numbers here, because it's easier if it's numbers, let's just suppose that it's, it's, it's a coin that's worth $100, all right? And she has $1,000 total, but she's counting her money. She counts out her coins, only nine of them, $900. She realizes that somewhere in her house, she has lost one of her coins. Now, what is she going to do about that? Well, if she loses one, does she not light a lamp and sweep the house and seek diligently until she finds it? Bible scholars fight about what these coins were, and it really doesn't matter. Some people think that maybe it was a part of her dowry that was given her, and so it represented uh, her family, it represented her marriage, and it was kind of a safety net for her. If her husband died, she would have some money um, a lot of the peasant villages in those days were told they really didn't have a lot of currency. So if you had currency, that was something that was really, really precious. Um, most of they just bartered for things, kind of, kind of gave and took as, as the community kind of needed. And, and, uh, and so if you had this money, it was really, really important. N nonetheless, no matter really what it came from or where it, what it was, that's not what's important. We recognize that it was super valuable and we recognize that she lost part of it. Now, what do we do? Jesus said she does two things. She lit a lamp and she swept the house. And this is kind of a different sort of thing, set of things. And I don't think Jesus is just being random here and he's thinking, oh, what shall I say? I'll say she lit a lamp. No, I think he's being very deliberate. Because if we realize that we're lost, there's a couple things that we have to do. 
In, in the first parable, the good shepherd goes out and seeks the sheep. But in the second parable, Jesus is talking now maybe a little bit more to some of those, those, those Pharisee or those, uh, those uh, tax collectors and sinners that are gathered around. And he's saying, if you realize that you're lost here today, if you've lost something important, there's a couple things that you need to do as well. One of those is you need to allow the light into your life. She lit a lamp. Right? Houses in those times were not particularly light. They didn't have windows like we know of them. That kind of slits. Uh, they were pretty dark, pretty damp, kind of dank kind of places. And so the first thing she did is she gets a light out and she puts it so she can see clearly what actually is going on. And we all know uh, how important light is, right? <laughs> when, when hurricanes hit and there's no lights anywhere, you go outside and you're like, wow, it's just dark, right? Or some of you guys are probably like me and you have to get up in the middle of the night and you think, I've got this. I have lived in this house for 20 years. I can make it from my bedroom to the bathroom or the refrigerator. Normally it's a refrigerator for me. What does that say about me? Anyway, um, yeah, I know how to make it down the stairs into the refrigerator, but you didn't know that after you went upstairs, someone moved the chair in the middle of the floor. They left on a scooter out in the middle of the, you know, and next thing you know, you're dancing on top of a scooter in the darkness you should have turned on the light, right? And, and, and so this woman exposes the, 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 the house to light, and then immediately she sees that there's a problem. It's a mess. So she grabs her broom, and she begins to sweep out the filth. She begins to push out the dirt. And if we're going to be saved, if we're going to find ourselves in the lostness, we've got to be willing to do those two things. We've got to be willing to turn the lights on and say, this is what's really going on in the heart of Jason. And then we've got to be willing to clean that mess up. Let me just say as a word of, of advice to those of us who are discipling and working with people. If someone's not willing to allow their lives to be kind of laid bare in the light of the scripture, in the light of the gospel, in the light of the message of Jesus, or if they're really not, if they're not really ready to make changes, to clean things up, Maybe they're just not ready yet, all right? And that's a hard thing for some of us because we're like, well, I know, I know if we just did these things, we, your life could be changed, and it would be. But this woman had to be willing to allow those two things happen. She had to be willing to turn the light on and see everything for what it was, and then she had to be willing to say, we're gonna clean up my side of the street. We're gonna clean out this stinking thinking. We're gonna change how we're living here. Now, when that happened, of course, she finds the coin, right? And so down in verse number eight, <clears throat> it says that she did something, which we read about in the, first, in the first parable. It says that she celebrated, right? So when she found it, she calls all of her friends and neighbors together. Once again, same kind of idea, big block party. Rejoice with me, for I have found the coin that I lost. And then Jesus says this again, just so I tell you, there is joy before the angels of God over one sinner who repents. You know, sometimes we think, well, God has to be extremely busy. How many human beings are there in the world right now? I don't even know. Um, there, there's billions of people alive, and this is just now. And, and yet, all through the course of time, there's been billions that have lived. Does God still get excited? Jesus said that he does. You notice the language right there? It says, there is joy before the angels of God. Sometimes we say, well, the angels celebrate. They probably celebrate too, but there's joy before them. Who's before the angels? God is, right? God is excited at this moment when this person finds what is lost. 
Jesus is using this, this, par- this theme in both of these parables, and we'll see it in the third as well. Jesus said, I want you to be excited about lost things that are found. If ever in our lives somebody finding Jesus Christ, if somebody's life being changed by the power of Jesus Christ does not excite us, you need to go home immediately, you need to get on your knees, and you need to repent because there's something wrong here. We don't have the heart of the Father if we're not just absolutely excited when we see people make a change and come to God. That's what Jesus is saying. She finds it. And it's not just her celebration. She calls everyone together. She's like, hey, hey, this is a great day. I found my lost coin. She's super excited. And then Jesus moves to a third parable. Probably the parable that we know the most about in the Bible, when you say parable, most people think of this one. It's a parable of the prodigal son, and I think it's probably one of the most touching and remembered of all the parables. The uh, pulpit commentaries call it the crown or the flower of the parable stories in the Bible, and I think it's because it just hits on so many themes that all of us can kind of grab onto. It's just, it's such a deep, deep parable. But Jesus has set up this third parable with the first two. So the, the shepherd goes and seeks the lost. The woman cleans up, lights up her home, and then sweeps things clean and finds what is lost. Both of them have a celebration. And in both cases, Jesus said, God also celebrates. And then he lays out this story that we know as the parable of the prodigal son. In verse number 11, it says, And he said to them, there was a man who had two sons. And the younger of them said to his father, Father, give me my share of the property that is coming to me and he divided his property between them. It's two boys, one older, one younger. If you know a little bit about the structure of things in those days, the older son was the one who would receive the inheritance of the family. He was the one kind of in charge of running the business of the house. So the younger son really didn't have any rights, but he goes to the father, and he says to the father, I want you to divide up your inheritance now. Now, this is, this is, this is troubling on a lot of levels <laughs> um, because he's kind of saying to his father, I wish you were dead, but since you're not dead yet, why don't you just go ahead and make it like you were dead because I want to get out of here. And I think this is a great reminder that God gives us free will. God gives this boy this opportunity because the father could have said, no, I'm not going to do that. No, you are not the one that's going to receive. You're older. If you want to get your inheritance, you wait around and you you fight it out with your older brother. But that's not what happens. You notice what it says. He said, Father, give me my share of the property that's coming to me. And he divided his property between them. He said, okay. If you want your freedom, here's your freedom. And the young man does what is predictable. He hangs around for a few days, but then he heads to a far country. Not many days later, the younger son gathered all of his, all that he had in verse number 13, and he took a journey into a far country. Because if you want to do everything that you're not supposed to do while you're with your dad, you go far away to do it where your dad doesn't have any reach, right? And so this is pretty typical. He's run off, left home, and goes to a far country, not to better himself, but to, well, as it says, there he spent everything. He lived in riotous living, the old King James used to say. He had a great time, <laughs> but he blew it all. And then at the end of that, a severe famine arose in that country, and he began to be in need. He was hungry. And so he went and he hired himself out to one of the citizens of that country who sent him into the field to feed 
pigs. Now you might say, oh, I don't like pigs, Jason. Yeah, I don't necessarily love pigs either, right? They taste good, but, but if you're a Jewish person, you, pigs were unclean and they were just culturally an animal you didn't want anything to do with. So you, you pick the most disgusting animal that you can think of, all right? And that's what this young man is in the middle of a pen full of whatever animal that is, in this case, pigs, Stinky, smelly, muddy, nasty pigs. He's feeding them bean pods. And then if you want to know just how bad it is, it says that he was, he was longing to be fed with the pods that the pigs ate. He was so hungry, he wanted to eat slop that was des de destined for the pig pen. But no one gave him anything. That's the thing about sin, isn't it, guys? It looks so fun on the front side. It looks like, man, this is where I want to be. This is the experience that I want to experience. I want this far country kind of lifestyle. And then all of a sudden, when all that is gone, when all that, that energy and enthusiasm and life, if you will, that we took into that party is no longer with us, we're left empty and broken. And the world really doesn't care. This guy's like, you want a job? You can go feed my pigs, but I'm not going to pay you. And so here he is out here in the middle of this pig pen. Maybe presumably someday he's going to get a check. But right now he's starving to death and no one will even give him slop because that's for the pigs. And then there's this moment that happens in this young man's life. A moment that has to happen in every one of our lives. And a moment that maybe happens more than just once. Jesus uses this phrase. It's so important. He says, and he came to himself. In verse 17, but when he came to himself, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread? All of a sudden, the light kicked on. He came to, he woke up, he got it. However, whatever phrase you want to put right there, all of a sudden he realizes this does not make sense. What I have just done was absolutely the most foolish thing that I could have ever done. I was once in a place of comfort and every need was provided for and now I find myself absolutely destitute and broken. And he thinks back to home. He says, you know what? All of my dad's servants have more than enough bread. When dinner's over, there's still a half a loaf of bread on the table. There's food to spare at my dad's house. But here I perish with hunger. Everything that he thought was so terrible months or years before all of a sudden looks so sweet and precious. And in verse 18, he said, I will arise and I will go to my father. And I'm going to say to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. It's real interesting to notice that. He, he said, I've sinned against heaven. When we do bad things in this world, guys, we hurt people. You're right. But the real problem is, is that, we, that we sin against God. Right? Even if no one is hurt, you ever hear people say that, well, no one's being hurt. If God's told you not to do it, then you're hurting God. That's the most important thing right here. And this young man got that. Obviously, Jesus is telling this parable and he's trying to kind of imprint something in our mind. The biggest problem here is this boy had sinned against God, right? And so he's, he knows that. He said, I, I've sinned against heaven and before you. And then he says this, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. This is how we know that he came to. This is how we know that he came to himself because he realized that I am no longer worthy. Until, while we think that we're worthy, while we think that we're a bargain, while we think God is lucky to have us, we haven't got it yet. 
It's only when we recognize that if I did not have the blood of Jesus Christ, I would be forever lost. That's the moment where we actually start to understand the enormity of God's grace and his love for us. This is a story just like the other three about repentance. In fact, all these stories are about repentance. For the Pharisees, they needed to repent of an attitude. For the tax collectors and sinners, they needed to repent of a lifestyle. And now Jesus is bringing this home and he's saying, we need to make some changes here because none of us are doing this right. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me like one of your hired servants. This young man probably knew something. In, in Hebrew culture at that time, there was a ceremony, and I'll butcher the name for it because I'm not really good with Hebrew, um, but it's, I think it's called kerizah. And it, here's what it was. And when a young man would leave his, his home and he would carry his, his, his wealth to a Gentile nation, and if he lost it there, when he returned home, the elders that sat at the city gate would do something. They would grab a jar that sat there. A lot of people kept their water jars and a lot of the wells were outside the city gate. They would grab one of those jars or a pot that was available. And as this person would try to walk in through the city gate, the elders would take and they would throw this container, this vessel, this glass object or this pottery object at them. And of course it would hit the ground and it would break. And it was a, it was a living reminder. It was a, it was a visceral, obvious object lesson to every single person that did that that you are no longer welcome here. You are separated, you have broken your relationship with your people, you've broken your relationship with your family, you've broken your relationship with God. You're no longer a part of our community, you're no longer a part of our family, and you have lost your connection to your faith. And this young man knew that all that was true. He had asked, his dad had given, he had taken the opportunity and he had wasted it. At the very least, the father could have welcomed him back in as a servant in his house, a hired person with no rights, and he knew he would be better off and he knew the heart of his father. He knew, my dad will do that for me. And he felt like if he could just get there, at least he would be home. But I want you to notice what how Jesus tells the latter part of this story. Because it picks up in verse number 20. It says, and he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and felt compassion. And then his father did something that no self-respecting Hebrew man would ever do. They all wore robes, as you, of course you know, and, and there's this phrase in the Bible that said, gird up your loins. You guys heard that before, right? That's because what they meant by that was a guy would have to reach down, he'd have to grab this long robe that he wore, right? You ever try to run in a dress? Some of you girls probably have. It's hard to do. So he'd reach down, he would grab the bottom of that, and he would pull it up to where he could get it high enough that his knees would work, and he would run, which you can imagine this image right here, right? Run, holding on to his garment with one hand, and no self-respecting Hebrew man would do that. For one thing, it makes you look ridiculous and for another thing, they were people of dignity and of pride and position. But Jesus, as he's telling the story, says, but the father, the father sees him from a distance, and while he's a long way off, he recognizes, that's my son, and he reaches down and he grabs his robe, and before the elders of the gate know it, he's streaking out down the road toward this boy. 
And, and he gets to him and he embraces him and he gives him a kiss and then the boy begins to repeat his memorized statement, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you, I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Please just make me a servant in your household, right? I'm guessing probably everyone in town took off with the father. Like, what in the world is he doing? And it says in verse 22, but the father said to his servants, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fatted calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate. All of a sudden, this dad says, no, look, we're not bringing you back into this town as a servant. We're not bringing you back into this town and throwing a jar at your feet and saying you are no longer a part of our family and you are not a part of our, our community and your faith is lost. We're not doing that with you. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. That's what we all deserve. But God said, that's not what we're doing with you. I am bringing you back into this city with a robe on your shoulders, with a ring on your feet, with shoes on your feet as my son, as my child. That's how you're going to walk back in this city. And when you walk back in this city, we're throwing a feast. Because as he put it, my son was dead and is alive again. He was lost and he is found. And they began to celebrate. <laughs> There's nothing that makes God happier than when his children his lost children make it home. But this is not just a parable of a lost son. In a way, this is a parable of lost sons. Because there's another son in this parable that looks more like me, to be honest. He was out in the field doing his thing. He was out working. He was being faithful. And he comes near town and there's a party that's broken out since the morning when he went to work. And he said, what in the world is going on? Look at me in verse 25. He called one of the servants, verse 26, and he asked, what do these things mean? What's going on in town, right? And he said to him, your brother has come and your father has killed the fatted calf because he's received him back safe and sound. But this brother isn't happy. He's angry. He said, and he refused to go in. You know, maybe, maybe we can kind of understand how he felt a little bit. You ever, you ever been in a place where somebody gets up and they have this powerful testimony about how their life just went downhill, but God was faithful and he brought them back from that? And you look at that and you think, I don't have that kind of testimony. I just grew up in a, in a family that loved the Lord and my folks loved God. They loved me. They loved one another. They made things work even though they made mistakes. And then I... My dad told me, hey, why don't you go to Bible college, Jason, and, and maybe you can sort out some of those things that's not working out in your life. And by the grace of God, I got there, and I was underneath someone's wing who took time to really pour into me and love me and, and help me through some difficult patches. And I, I decided to become a preacher, and I've worked in the church. I mean, that's not a very exciting story. <laughs> what do I have? And the son feels like that. And his, the father does something really special here too. We might miss it, but the father doesn't just wait in, in his party until his son gets over himself to come in, right? Because that would probably be how most fathers in that culture would respond. He'll come to his house eventually when he's ready to humble himself. I decided a party. No, 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 that's not what the father does. The father goes out and he entreats him. He says, hey, hey, come on, man, come in. And the son, of course, is primed for this. He's angry. He says, look, these many years that... <clears throat> 
I have served you and I never disobeyed your command and you never even gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. This isn't fair. I want to have what he has. But then a son of yours comes who has devoured your property with prostitutes. You kill the fatted calf for him. Oh, he's self-righteous, isn't he? Oh, woe is me. I, I haven't gotten near as much as he got. And the father puts up with it. He puts up with me. And he said to him, son, look what you have. Your son doesn't have, the old younger son, he wasted all of his good. He's back, but his position is gone. His inheritance is gone. It's been blown. Son, look what you have. You are always with me. You never had to experience that pig pen. You never lost what he lost. And all that is mine is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad. For this brother was dead and now is alive. He was lost and now he's found. Every single one of us are there. We're lost and we were found. The good shepherd went out and he found us where we were. Now sure, we had to allow the light of the gospel to penetrate our hard and dark hearts. We had to be willing to clean things out so that, that God could move in and begin to make a difference. But the truth is, is if it wasn't for the blood of Jesus, if it wasn't for the covering of, of, Christ, of Christ's sacrifice on the cross, none of us would ever be worthy. And while maybe we haven't run to the far corners of the world, into a far country and kicked up our heels and devoured everything that God had given us as far as opportunities in life, doing stupid things. Maybe we stayed right at home, but we still didn't recognize what we have in God. We have everything. If we have a relationship with the Lord, that is enough. And so this morning, we're going to stand together and we're going to sing. And maybe, maybe some of us just recognize today, you know what, I need to give, get things right with God. I'm not right with God right now. I'm a person that's lost. I need to have my sins covered in baptism. I need to be filled with the Spirit. This is a great time to make that choice. Don't wait for another day. Do it today. Maybe some of us look at the store and you know what, you know what, Jason, I'm, I'm an older son. <laughs> I'm just sore about how things are going. I'm sore that, that it doesn't seem like it worked out for me, like it's worked out for other people. Maybe, maybe this is a time for us just to bow our heads and say, you know what, God, forgive me. Help me to see what I have in you and not what I don't have. We're all very blessed. God, we've been given an awesome opportunity to find the most important thing, salvation. And that should really frame the entirety of who we are. Let's stand together and let's sing. If you have a need, you know you can come.